Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. I take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus, and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There are a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on the forest floor for far too long, and we will reach that canopy again. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. Good afternoon, I'm Caroline Hepker and welcome to today's special episode of Bloomberg Westminster where we're focusing in on Brexit. Because in the long and tangled story of Brexit talks, this seems to be the beginning of the final chapter. But as the latest round of trade talks wraps up in Brussels today, it's left UK and European Union officials fearing a Brexit deal could slip through their fingers. Sources are telling Bloomberg that British negotiators tried to break the deadlock this week by submitting a draft free trade agreement based on where they believe there is common ground with the EU. But so far, the gambit hasn't led to a breakthrough, with the EU chief negotiator, Michel Barnier, saying that key sticking points like state aid rules and fishing quotas remain an issue. Franchement, de mon côté, I too... Uh, I'm frankly disappointed and concerned and surprised as well, I must say, because the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson told us in June that he wished to speed up the negotiating process during the summer. But this week, once again, as in the uh, July round, the British negotiators have not shown any real willingness to move forward on issues of fundamental importance for the European Union. So Michel Barnier there saying, at this stage, an agreement between the UK and the EU seems unlikely. If it's terminology, well, his UK counterpart David Frost insists an agreement is still possible. But it's clear it's not going to be easy to achieve. And in a statement, he said substantive work continues to be necessary across a range of different areas. Well, let's try and reconcile some of this. Let's bring in Bloomberg's Brexit editor, Ed Evans. So, Ed, welcome to the programme. Possible or unlikely? I mean, which one should one choose looking at where these talks are going? It's certainly looking difficult. I think what you're seeing today is a real sense of frustration on both sides at the complete lack of progress in these talks. These have been going on since March. And the obstacles are there, have been, that are there now are, were the same ones at the beginning. And the big ones here are on fisheries, where there's clearly been... Um, very little agreement, in fact, one might even suggest a bust-up this week, where uh, the British are very clear that they want to take back control over British waters uh, after Brexit, and something the EU is not budging on at all. Um, and on the level playing field, particularly think the subsidy regime after Brexit. Now, British officials did try to break the deadlock this week by, putting, uh, by submitting what's called a, uh, a consolidated text. Now, that's a draft-free trade agreement, essentially, a treaty text. Um, with all the bits that they agree on, 
Um, and the idea of that is that you can then focus on the bit you don't do, agree on. And Michelle Bardi, who's just been speaking, you know, really gave that very short shrift. So it's, it's clear then that there's very little progress here um, and that this is going to go down to the wire. Yeah, it's been obviously a very testy week. I mean, you can hear it in the kind of language that's being used. What breaks this, if anything? And um, is a delay, an extension, some kind of addition of time at all possible or thinkable, given also that the pandemic is rearing its ugly head again across Europe? No, no. I think the, the British have ruled out any extension of the transition period beyond December 31st. Um, so what you might get, however, is um, a slight extension in the negotiating process. Now, the current talks between Frost and Barnier are set to end on October the 2nd. There is an EU summit of EU leaders on October the 15th. Now, the EU says that that's the point that it really wants to have an agreement by. It needs time to, to ratify um, the, the agreement through member states and so on. Um, and that means that the, so that's enough to give them enough time to ratify the deal in time for the end of the transition period. Now, it's possible that the talks could go on uh, in that fortnight between October the 2nd and October the 15th. You might, at that point, see um, the EU leaders getting involved. Even possibly you could see that October deadline stretching. You could see possibly that being stretched into November. But that December 31 deadline, I think, is, is, is set in stone at this point. OK, so that um, at least a fixed date then on the calendar. The time uh, is running out then. Ed Evans, thank you so much for being with us. Bloomberg's Brexit editor there at the end of what has been obviously a very difficult week of negotiations between the EU and the UK. So is there going to be a deal and what kind of deal will it be? Well, if you ask our next guest... No deal is always better than a bad deal, but the devil, of course, will be in the detail of any eventual agreement to see if it appeases or angers those who campaigned for the UK to leave the EU. And one of those is the former MEP and current Brexit Party chairman, Richard Tice. Thanks for being with us. First of all, I suppose that the key and important point in this is, do you think a deal that will please you and people who think like you will come out of this process? It's a really good question. Uh, from everything I'm hearing and the sort of the mood music, uh, I think it's much more likely that there will be uh, a some form of deal that is agreed. It, it'll be agreed quite late in the day, but I think they will they will get to a place that will enable both sides to claim that they've maintained their most critical uh, red line. So, for example, on the UK side, in terms of fishing and, uh, you know, moving away from being constrained by, you know, totally identical regulatory alignment. Uh, but equally from the EU side, I think there will be certain differences mm -hmm. that would enable them to say that we are protected from, uh, that they've maintained the integrity of the single market. Um, and so it would be what I would call a... A partial deal, not a all-encompassing perfect deal. That, that, that's where okay. I tend. I think the likelihood likelihood of no deal has has dropped very significantly. Okay, I mean, we've still only got seven weeks to go, um, and the deal has not yet been done. So yes, look well, what the EU though... always does deals at the last minute. Yes, okay, but look what um, in specific terms then uh, on a scale of one to ten, how happy would you be with this partial deal in terms of the details? Uh, as far as we know them, what concerns you most then? 
Well, I, I think the truth is that we know very few of the details in, in reality. Um, uh, from our perspective, ensuring that we've got full control of our, our, our fishing waters you know, is a key red line. But it's why is, I'm sorry to interrupt you, why is fishing when it is economically, you know, I'll, I'll makes you up why. so little of the UK economy? Why is that so important? Because because it's absolutely critical to some of the poorest and most disadvantaged areas of this country, which is our coastal communities, where actually, for the coastal communities, it actually is economically massive. And the potential growth for every extra job at sea, there are seven or eight jobs on land, there's huge tourism opportunity, and these are areas that have been left behind. And so it's actually, it's what I would call very metropolitan big city thinking to say, it doesn't matter, it's tiny. It's not. To real people's lives on coastal communities is absolutely critical. And as, a, as an island merchant trading nation, it's always been part of our heritage. So it is a, it, it's a key point. To but it surely can't be a, the source of the future jobs. I said it, it surely isn't, though, going to be a source of major job creation in the future. So, I, I, you know, I would argue the point okay, about it okay, being yeah, kind I'm, of metropolitan thinking. I'm, I'm going to stop you there. That is mm. classic big city incorrect thinking. Mm. In the relevant coastal areas, it is, it is probably one of the greatest job creating opportunities. So, yes, it is big and it is important to, uh, to people who live in the coastal areas. And the reality, it's not a trade-off between fishing and financial services. Financial services, you know, the City of London, their main competitors is not Frankfurt or Paris, it's New York and Asia. And that's where they've got to focus and that's where they've got to be really competitive. The other key red line for us, you know, bluntly, is regulatory alignment and state aid. With the economic crisis that we face ahead of us, we have to have the ability, where necessary, use government intervention to support critical industries across a range of different sectors. And, and we cannot be kowtowing and going to Brussels asking for permission to support this or that industry. We have to make well, quick, rapid decisions. Well, Richard, given given all that, I mean, just to say, on with, with your position in terms of the Brexit party, if you don't get a deal that you like that comes out of all this. Do you then go on to campaign against that deal? Does the Brexit party go on and on campaigning until it gets a perfect Brexit? I think we've got to see what comes out of it. Uh, I, I think we, if, it's a, if, if they essentially give up on some of those key red lines, then we would make it very clear that um, essentially uh, the government has, uh, has, has essentially sold us down the river at the very last minute. For the, you know, for the whole of this year, we've been very supportive of David Frost. He's been rock solid. Uh, he's been 110% uh, good to his word and to the word and the manifesto of, of, of the Conservative uh, elected government. Um, I think there's, you know, there's, there's nothing to indicate to us that you know, they will sell us down the river at the last minute. But if they do, we would make it very loud and clear um, that this is a this would be a really bad deal, and that there's a huge lost opportunity. And and, mm. and, and given the crisis that that we face, hundreds of thousands of people sadly losing their jobs. You know, the the need to be free to make our own economic decisions rapidly is absolutely critical. And yes, we would then we would hold the government to account for the subsequent direction of the economy if actually we're hamstrung by still being too closely aligned and tied to Brussels. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. The Brexit process itself has been subject to criticism, of course, throughout, starting with concerns over the legality of the referendum all the way back in 2016, and more recently whether the unprecedented virus pandemic should force a delay to the end of the transition period. Well, the government is sticking to its guns, saying the UK will not extend past the 31st of December, and raising concerns, of course, any last-minute deal will have to be rushed through Parliament. Uh, well, for more, let's bring in the founder of SCM Direct and Brexit Transparency Campaigner, Gina Miller. Gina, welcome back to the programme. Thank you for being with us. So the battle over the Brexit process, you won two legal challenges against the UK government. So firstly, giving MPs a say over triggering Article 50, and then also the ruling about Boris Johnson's decision to suspend Parliament, um, the decision that that was unlawful. So you've had sort of a couple of quite big wins um, when it comes to uh, the legal process, are you now concerned by the current lack of progress when it comes to these tra trade talks um, and what it might mean for the deal in the end? Oh, I'm, I'm very concerned, as I know many commentators in the UK are, primarily because um, the mindsets of the two sides seem to be very, seem to be miles apart. On the UK side, there is still this thinking that it will be a deal at the 11th hour because, you know, Europe can't do without us. And on the European side, this idea that uh, we um, will do whatever we can to um, to get a deal. And I think um, both sides have now realized that uh, with the time constraints and the positions that both sides have adopted, that if there is a deal, it's probably going to be a wafer-thin, paper-thin deal. Um, and then we live with the fallout. But neither side wants that. Um, um, but I, it's, a, it's, mm. it's about the willingness to meet halfway. And at this moment, you know, we've just had some uh, negotiations this week. And uh, the UK, we have retabled uh, co consolidated text, um, at which I'm, I'm led to believe the response from the EU side is, well, we've never seen this before. So I still think both sides are way apart. But there are also some other factors, which is that the UK, we were banking in the UK on much on the fanfare around the Japanese deal being announced just a few weeks ago, and also um, negotiations of deals with other Trans-Pacific partnership um, countries such as New Zealand. And those are not progressing as quickly as we had thought. So it is very worrying. Well, well, Gina, I mean, let me ask you then, from your point of view, and obviously you are coming at this from a very particular point of view, uh, opposing, of course, the whole idea of Brexit in the first place. But now, well, no, 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 Roger, can I say? I think right. now we we have to get a deal. We have well, to get exactly. a deal. Well, exactly. Well, that's that's really what I'm asking. Because I'm saying is realistically, what do you see as the best outcome for the UK from all this? The problem is the time we have left. And uh, for any deal to be ratified by the EU member states, it would need to be done by the end of October, November. And in my view, with the constraints of the time and now COVID and the pandemic and all the, un you know, we can't foretell the future, um, un unintended or intended. So I would say 
if we could have a overarching agreement which basically says that we will then sit down as time goes on next year and look at sector by sector so almost a holding pattern deal which means that both sides can carry on as we were in a sort of something that would be equivalent to transition but we would still have left and still have left the transition period but you know we haven't had the time to look at each of the sectors i mean for me one of the things I'm very concerned about is, is that we're not talking about financial services. Financial services are not included at the moment, along with fisheries, in any of the draft texts that I've seen or any of the draft legislation. Um, and yet it's a huge contributor to our economy, you know, to the, to the GDP. So how can we be ignoring financial services? And even worse than that, we're having new terms that are emerging. The latest I've heard is something called risk-adjusted um, or risk-outcome equivalence. Now, what does that mean? It is so late in the day to be coming up with these um, terms, terminology and sort of, you know, trying yeah. to whip rabbits out of bags. It's too late for that. Look, has the, you mentioned the pandemic. Has the virus, in your view, actually changed anything fundamentally in terms of the UK-EU relationship? I mean, I do certainly feel that on the UK side, you know, the realisation of having um, been so terribly hit by the pandemic um, has caused some people to be rather worried about the structure and, and capabilities of government. Do you think that there is a fundamental change in terms of our relationship, UK-EU now? <laughs> I think there is in the populace. I'm not so sure in the, in, in the political classes there is. There seems to be still a very strong mindset that uh, we should be able to go it alone and not be part of a collective. And I think, you know, the pandemic, I'd say on the European side, they haven't necessarily maybe played as they should do as a, as a, a one country. For example, you know, when Germany uh, brought in the Test and Trace app, you know, should surely that app should have been shared with the other EU member states. So, you know, both sides have learned different structural issues and have confronted different structural issues. But I think the overarching one is that for us to, if we are indeed, as some experts say, we are now entering an age of pandemic, be it in humans or in plants or insects, animals, whatever, then actually acting as a collective is vital. So I'm hoping that if whatever happens with the Brexit negotiations, that both sides realise that we have got to work together for whatever new world we're entering. We have to be able to rely on each other. Mm, but, but at the same time, as you say, the example hasn't been set in Europe. And some people would say, had we been fully uh, part of Europe now in the way that we were, in some ways it would have been worse. We might have been dragged into doing things that on reflection weren't so good. I think we wouldn't. And the reason I say that is, is that it's often, uh, we all often speak as the UK having the same relationship as other member states. And uh, we never did. We already had a special relationship. We were never part of Schengen. We were never part of the EU. And we were always at the top table able to influence. And I think the EU is actually lesser in its decision making and how it's handled, handled the pandemic for the UK not being at the table. Hmm. So what next then, Gina, for, for you uh, and for people like you who have battled over this issue for years, what, if anything, can you actually achieve? I mean, is there, for example, another court case somehow on the horizon, some particular issue that you could uh, try to have an influence over? Not in terms of Brexit, because everything now has been done legally. We had uh, the legal requirement by the end of July to um, extend that has gone and passed. So from the point of view of the actual Brexit process, 
no, but, I, but then there are many other side issues that will come into play. For example, no, no, none of us can understand how, for example, um, conflicts will work or resolution, conflict resolution will work in the future when we're outside of the EU because we haven't looked at the court process. So if you look at how Parliament will work in the UK, are, uh, is Parliament going to be bypassed? Um, what powers are the executive going to use? There is definitely a, a, a reason for many of us to be looking closely at how our Parliament is working and if government is actually following the rules when it comes to constitutional requirements. Gina, if, if you take a moment to look back and over the, all the time since 2016 and what's happened and what you and, and, and fellow campaigners have been doing, do you ever think that maybe if you hadn't pushed so hard in the opposite direction, all this might have long since been sorted before the virus hit, potentially, and it wouldn't be quite such a mess that, as it now seems to be. No, because if you look at the processes, um, the two cases I bought were to make sure that we get things along the lines of our constitutional requirements. And let me flip that the other way. Imagine if we had, um, Mrs May had triggered Article 50 and had bypassed Parliament, then the EU could have turned around and said, well, you haven't followed Article 50 and the requirements of the treaty, so we will refuse to negotiate with you until we have this settled in an international court. So we would have actually been, we could have been in an even worse position because it was very clear that we had to follow a certain process. And that is what my case is ensured we did. Because to me, the biggest nightmare would have been that if we couldn't actually have dealt with any country or negotiated with anyone for a free trade deal, because we would have been in a court in Strasbourg arguing whether or not we had contravened an international treaty. Yeah. Um, so no regrets at all, I guess, is what you're saying. I, no, 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 I do have, I mean, one of the things I regret, and I still regret now uh, in the way that we're handling the pandemic, mm. is that um, I don't think enough parliamentarians are, are holding the government to account. I don't think they're asking the questions that actually put the country first. And I'm regretful that, too, that there were there, too many party politics was played, both on Brexit and now in the pandemic. And it's not about putting our country first, and that well, is what I find very regretful. Well, that's regretful about what's happening. But what about regretful about your handle in all this? Did you, do you think, on, on balance, you did everything you could? Looking back, could you have done anything different? No, because what I did was ensure that parliamentarians were at the centre of the debate. And I think on the second case, on the prorogation case, that was the government blatantly looking to shut down Parliament and act as though they were the supreme power, and they are not. Um, so the second case, in an odd way, was actually more important than the first because a government cannot bypass Parliament. Um, mm. I, and, and so from the constitutional requirement... Yeah. Absolutely. It was no no one was going to deter me from doing that. Surely the next major constitutional challenge will be um you know another attempt at independence by Scotland. <laughs> there are, I think there are quite a few constitutional um <laughs> uh, sort of uh, if you like uh, cards on the horizon. One is is you know the union the state of our union. Mm. But before that I'd say it's a good fight agreement on what happens on the island of Ireland. Yeah. Uh, which seems to be being ignored by all parties at the moment but I still right. it, it baffles me why nobody's talking about that or well, not nobody but why people aren't talking about that in, in a much more urgent way. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, 
influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at cuttereconomicforum.com.